seat. Again, I, uh, I appreciate you being here this morning. And if you are new to our church, you may not know that we are in a series based on the book Soul Care by Rob Reimer. And I wanted to, to start this sermon off by recapping a little bit about what we talked about last week. Last week, we, we talked about the lies that, that we believe, the lies that are uh, so strong that they become part of our identity. Things that maybe were spoken over us when we were younger, things that we believe about ourselves today that are not true about who we are in Christ. And so if you, you look back in the back of the sanctuary, we've got uh, the mirror that we used last Sunday with the, the, the axe in the background. There's a little sign that says, please do not touch. Why? Um, because it's sharp and it might cut you. I don't know. If uh, for any reason you're like, you know, Pastor, I would like to break that mirror some more, talk to me. We can do that. There is something powerful about saying this is the lie that has haunted me for years and I want to break it in Jesus' name with the truth of his word. Hey, we can have some mirror-breaking time. I'm okay with that. But not on the table in the back. You might break the wood. I don't know. Um, so last week we talked about these, these lies that we believe. We broke them up into three categories. Well, Rob did, and we kind of highlighted it. The first is the performance lie. Um, these lies link our value to what we can do. And so we, we talk about them and we say that uh, we believe we are valued, we believe we are loved, and we believe we are accepted if we do certain things. But if we don't do certain things, or in my case, if you don't do certain things well enough, you are judged, condemned, and shamed. And so this, this performance lie, it, it speaks to our identity. And we believe things about ourselves based on how we act. It's interesting because oftentimes when I prepare for sermons, God brings stuff to my mind in my own, in my own life. And I remember looking at this going, huh, I remember the day that God broke this in one relationship. And so many of you can relate to this with your parents where you have had an experience or a group of experiences that made you feel you had to perform in order to be accepted. For me, it was about grades. And I remember wanting my dad's um, approval. And so the number one and number two are often connected, the people-pleasing lies. I wanted his approval based on my academics. And I knew, not that he had to say a word, but by the look on his face, if he was pleased with me or not, based on my performance. And when that came to my mind, um, when I was in college, I remember having to talk to my dad and say, hey, dad, I need you to know something. I'm not holding you accountable for this, but I've lived under the lie of the enemy that your approval of my performance is, is where I get my identity and my value. I said, I just needed to say that because... I don't want to live under that anymore. And it broke something in him. He goes, I am so sorry that, that you have felt that way. I love you. And so my dad was just pouring love into my heart, pouring value into me. And I go, this was a powerful moment. Some of you may never have that kind of experience. 
And so we talk about these things because you may be living under a performance lie to this day that God wants to break. And you may not have a parent who understands or a loved one or a friend who has hurt you that even understands what it means to ask for forgiveness or to bring healing. So I stand before you today as someone who cares about you, who has been given some insight into God's word that wants to bring you into truth, that your value is not based upon what you do. We replace the lie with the truth of God. Your value is based on who he is and who he says you are, son or daughter of the king. The performance lie says, if I were just this, or if I just made this much money, or if I just had this job, or if I could just do these things, then I'll have value. The next one was the people-pleasing lie. We said that these are often connected, people-pleasing and performance. This lie says that, that our value is dependent on whether certain people love us or like us. Our value is then based upon the opinions or our perception of other people's opinions of us other than on how God views us. So in the end, whether we recognize it or not, we say that your opinion of me is more important than God's opinion of me. I'll be honest, growing up and even to this day, this, this still comes up and, and it comes up and, and it bites me in certain relationships. And so if I am in a room full of people and there are men who are in authority over me, specifically men in my case, I have this desire to win their approval. Part of it goes back to that root of where the lie first took place in my relationship with my dad. Guys, I know my dad loves me and I love my dad, but ultimately he could disown me tomorrow and it doesn't change my value. Just like your value is not based upon what other people think. But I understand that when I enter into a room of people that I view as an authority, and so in the military, it's really easy. Anybody who has a rank higher than me, I go, okay, there's a major, there's a lieutenant colonel, there's a, colonel, there's a general, I want them to like me. Now, we all have that. On some level, we want the approval of other people. It's not a sin to go, I want to show my best. What happens is when we believe that if we don't perform or if they don't approve, then we have less value. That's where the enemy gets a foothold in our lives. And so I have to do this every time I feel this twinge, this desire to, to earn approval. I go, you know what? No, I am who I am. I'm a son of God, and I will live my life based on my convictions, based on God's word. No, I will not compromise to earn your approval. No, I will not change who I am to receive something from you that's less important than what I've already received from God himself. Already, right? There we go. And so, no, it's not important for us to put our value in what other people think versus what God thinks. And oftentimes, again, this is connected to performance. And the third category are the lies of control. These lies scream that our value is dependent on whether or not we are in control of certain situations. Oftentimes, you know, we, we joke in uh, male versus female that uh, women often want to understand, men often just want to fix. That's a, a generalization, right? But I've talked with more men than I can count who go, no, I can fix that. Uh, no, I, I've got this. Or, you know what, there's a problem, I need to take care of it. And we 
believe that our control or our ability to control certain situations equals our value. We must control the outcome of the things we care about. Our capacity to produce results equals our value. The more we can produce results, the more we can fix, the more we can control, the more value and purpose we have and the better we feel about ourselves. And so again, the lie is not in that desire to to be the best you can, to, to fix broken things. That's not the lie. The lie is when our value is connected to how good we are at those and how often we can make other people do what we want. Oh, man, manipulation, coercion. Yeah, these are words that we don't like to say, deception, but they are a part of our action when we are driven by the lies of control. All right, so what we did last week was we had a a time in the service where we asked people to write words on the mirror, lies that they've believed about themselves. It didn't matter what category. And then we did this, this amazing visual. We threw the mirror on the ground. We took the act. We just started busting it out with the truth of God. I am accepted in Christ. Boom, we're going to break that lie of I am not lovable. Uh, I have value in Christ. Boom, we're going to break the lie of, of I'm not good enough. I am his daughter. I am his son. We're going to break the lie that you are worthless, that you are, 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 are pointless. You have no value. And the idea was this, if your identity is rooted in Christ, then you have grasped a hold of how to begin to have a healthy soul. Because if your identity is not found in Christ alone, your soul is not in a place of spiritual health. Or you're not in, in that, that direction of moving towards spiritual health. So this morning, we're going to move on to the second of the seven transformational principles for a healthy soul. And it's Simply this word, repentance. Now, repentance is not a dirty word. But as I was processing with Pastor Mike this week, I go, how do I frame this? Because we can look at that one word and a million things come to mind of, oh, man, I screwed up. I need to ask for forgiveness. Oh, man, I failed at being a Christian. I am no good. And the lies come back in again. The performance lies, right? I didn't do enough. I've only been to church twice this month, or I didn't pray. All these things the enemy will use to twist our sense of value. What is repentance? Rob says repentance is more than just a change in behavior. Biblical repentance is about changing your mind and purpose. It is about changing the way you think. It is about bringing yourself into alignment with God. This needs to be a normal practice in our lives, repentance. And so I like to simplify things. And so I said, how, do I, how would I describe this in like a, a very oversimplified, super duper like condensed sentence? And mine is like this, owning your actions, genuinely asking for forgiveness and committing to move in the right direction. That would be Jason's definition of repentance. I'm going to own what I've done. And I'm going to genuinely ask for forgiveness. Like, no, this is not the person I want to be. And I'm going to commit to moving in the right direction. In, in Scripture, the word repent, it, it, visually what it means is you were moving in this direction. And then you do a 180 and you go, no, I'm going this way now. And so there is that visual of a turning that takes place when we repent. We live 
in a really messed up society. There is a lot of ambiguity. We live in the constant gray of what's right and what's wrong based on our society. Right is wrong, wrong is right. You do you and, and, and just, just be good. Well, those are all subjective. What does that even mean? It seems as if there are no absolutes anymore from the world's perspective. Yet if you follow Christ and you believe that He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, then you can believe what He says absolutely. I have a lot of conversations with people, um, churched folk, unchurched folk, people who want nothing to do with God, and, and this theme comes up all the time of, what is right for you, that's good. What is right for me is also good. We don't have to agree. And no, I'm not going to be offended by your definition of right or wrong, but you better not be offended by my definition of right or wrong. How are we supposed to know anything in that type of society? Well, if we believe that there was no creator God, that there was no law that he set down of right and wrong. Think about this logically for a moment. How are any of us to determine what is good and what is not? If we live in a, well, we were created by chance society, we just exist, then that's true. What's right for you, that's good. What's right for me, that's good. But, well, don't infringe on my rights. We can agree murder is bad, right? Well, why? Well, because our cultural, our society has said so in that definition. Go to another culture. We, we uh, talked about the, um, the Amazon tribe uh, in the, the movie The Gates to Splendor not too long ago where murder was a part of their society, and it was okay. It wasn't until the gospel came in and said, hey, the creator God says this is wrong, stop killing people, that they're like, oh, I never knew understand that there is a moral code and it's not driven by society that absolutely God's word is true and that he sets the standard for us. And so repentance does not exist outside of God because, well, well let me say it this way, godly repentance, godly sorrow does not exist outside of a relationship with God. We can have worldly sorrow. Like, oh man, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry that I got caught. <laughs> uh, but God sets the standard. If you desire to grow in the Lord, then simply ask Him to reveal to you the areas in your life that you have not fully surrendered to Him. When you do this, something amazing begins to happen. The Holy Spirit inside of you will convict you into greater measure about the sin in your life. Now, this, this conviction from the Holy Spirit, it is not meant to condemn you. Oftentimes, even Christians will believe the lie that conviction equals condemnation. Don't shine a light into the, the sin in my life because I don't want to be shamed by you. Well, no, that, that's like the world's definition of, hey, you do you, I'll do me, and we're fine, and you don't need to know what I'm doing. It's my business, not yours. But in the Christian community, God says, no, walk in the light as he is in the light, and you'll have fellowship with one another. 
And the idea is this, the Holy Spirit convicts not to condemn, but to set us free. And so we can look at the joy and go, no, repentance is not a dirty word that, that drives us to hiddenness. It's a powerful word that drives us to freedom. And so let's not look at the negative. Let's look at the positive. God, what are you doing here? Here's the cool thing. As you ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate in your life the areas that God wants to have control over, he doesn't do this. This conviction is not to condemn, but to loving you, lovingly bring you to a place of awareness and decision. So this is the key. For many of us, we're not convicted of our sin until we ask God to show us the stuff that we're, we're, we're doing that is not honoring him. For some people, it's, it's like, hey, I never knew this was wrong until I asked God, hey, show me what's wrong in my life, and he'll highlight things. It's pretty powerful. And what is okay for you now may not be okay for you tomorrow because the Spirit of God is going to convict you on that. Now, the world says these things are bad, these things are good. God says even some good things may not be good for you because they're leading you a place that is where I am not going. What do I mean by that? Well, is it okay to drink coffee? Sure, why not? Um, is it okay to drink soda? Sure, why not? But if those things become more important to you than God, maybe God might convict you about an addiction. Are sports good? I think absolutely. I love sports. In this order, God, family, steal it. But if this ever becomes more important than this, then God may say, hey, Jason, I'm convicting you to repentance because you've placed something above me. And so even the good things in the world can become sin in our lives when we place them above God. And so the Spirit, what he does is he convicts us of this sin. He brings us to a place of awareness and decision. Here's the thing. Once you're brought into that place of awareness and decision, what's the decision? Will I continue to live in my sin or will I be obedient to God? Friends, ignorance can be a wonderful thing, but ignorance will not lead to spiritual maturity. When you ask God, would you show me, Lord, that which is holding me back from a deeper relationship with you, he will shine his light into areas of your life that may make you uncomfortable because you then have to make a decision. Now that I am aware that the Steelers have become more important to me than God, or coffee, or what you name it, this has become more important to me than God. Now that I'm aware, what am I going to do about it? And every single one of us who has ever asked that question, if we're being honest, there have been times where we have chose willful disobedience. God, I wish I didn't know that this bothered you because I love this. I love this so much, I don't want to give this up. Um, well, maybe I'll, I'll just spend more time, you know, I'll offset that time by doing more things for you. We make these deals with God. Willful disobedience is still disobedience. And so the Spirit convicts for the purpose of freedom. And when you ask, He will show you what He wants you to put at the foot of the cross. Okay? At the same time, though, the enemy of your soul is hard at work, and he does not want you to be free. I've said before, the enemy is both the tempter 
and the accuser. He is the one that dangles the forbidden fruit in front of you and invites you into this willful disobedience. Okay, I'm using an Adam and Eve analogy here, right? The enemy is the one that says, hey, check this out. This is amazing. You know you want this. You, this is exactly what will make you happy. You're miserable because you're not experiencing this. You need this. It'll make you feel better. It's what you really want. And then when you say, you know what, you're right. Whether it's a, a willful decision or a, I just kind of stumbled into this and saw this. I'm like, hey, this is good, and I ate it. When you enter into the sin, the tempter becomes the accuser. The same person that invited you in is the one that now condemns. I can't believe you just ate that. I can't believe you just did that. What kind of a Christian are you? What if the pastor finds out? What if your wife finds out? What if your kids find out? No one's going to love you if they, if they really knew you did this. But you just gave this to me, and you were dumb enough to eat it. Again, you know what? I don't even think God will forgive you. You better tuck that away and just keep it hidden. <laughs> because if it comes out into the light, you're screwed. And we believe those lies. We believe them because they, they hit at the core of our acceptance, our performance, all of these things. If, if the enemy is going to attack us, he's going to attack us there. At least in my life, it has been with the opinions of other people, if they only knew. And the thing that will bring us freedom is the very thing that the enemy says will bring us more shame and condemnation. And so this idea is that, hey, I'm going to lead you into this, and then I'm going to heap piles and piles of shame on top of you for doing it. Actually, if you guys remember Back to the Future, I think it's part two where uh, Michael J. Fox is in his awesome Toyota truck, and he's next to the guy, Needles. He's like revving up. You guys remember this scene, anybody? He's like, come on, dude, the light's going to turn green. Let's go. And that's basically the tempter saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. Not even thinking about the consequences. And in that scene, originally, they drive, and then Michael J. Fox gets into an accident, and he's paralyzed and all this stuff. But in Back to the Future, part two, he doesn't go. He goes backwards and says, no, I ain't doing that. And he sees the consequences of his actions. I was going to show the video clip, but they're swearing in it. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. So I just told you. The tempter is also the accuser. And he tells us, you need to keep this hidden, even hidden from God. Rob says, if the Spirit convicts, you respond. But don't allow the enemy to bury you in a grave of condemnation. Some of the lies that the enemy uses are connected again to our identity and they're connected to God's love for us. How in the world can the enemy of our soul dangle this fruit in front of us and then tell us with the audacity that if you eat this, God will never forgive you? Understand that the enemy can never choose for you to sin. He can never make you sin. He just says, hey, I'm going to offer the enticement. You are responsible for your own actions. And it's that responsibility, that condemnation, that issue dealing with the consequences that he continues to magnify after the fact. If the Spirit convicts, 
you respond. Here's something that I think is very important. The beautiful message of the gospel is that though you are deeply flawed, you are even more deeply loved. There is no condemnation in Christ. Conviction, yes. Condemnation, no. Even though you are deeply flawed, you are even more deeply loved. When we look in the mirror and we see nothing but the lies, which are often brought about by sin or the sin of others spoken over us, we're not seeing what God wants us to see. It's important to break the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. Because when we look in the mirror, what he wants us to see is his son. Because when he sees you and he sees me, he sees his son in us. And my prayer for every person that I come in contact with is that some way, somehow, that they would see themselves the way that God sees them. That you would see yourself the way that God sees you. As a loving father, yes, we have to face the consequences of our sin, but our sin does not keep us eternally separated from God if we have repented of that sin and sought forgiveness. Guys, this is a powerful message, and I want you to catch it because there are implications in your daily life that the enemy wants to keep you unaware of. Responsibilities that, that God invites us into that we sh often shut that door and go, no, I don't want to be aware because then I have to choose. If you want to be growing in your spiritual walk with God, then you have to bring yourself to a place of, I want to choose. I want to be aware. But you will never grow beyond that willful disobedience. Once you say, God, I'm choosing this, I'm not choosing you, but I'll choose you in these other areas. He goes, listen, listen, this is what I've invited you into. When God convicts, you respond. Some of us need to go back to those moments where we've said no, and we need to repent for that no. God, you told me to do this five years ago. And, and I ignored you. I didn't say no, but I didn't say yes. If there's something like that in your life that is still nagging at your spirit, it's something God is bringing to the surface, something that he's shining his light on that he wants you to deal with. And it may be a simple, God, I just repent for my inaction. And that may be it. And he goes, hey, that door is now done, closed, it's forgiven, let's move on. But oftentimes we want depth in our walk with God, but we're not willing to make those difficult decisions. Guys, they're really not that difficult. It's just, yes, God, okay, let's go. I don't know what this is going to mean. How in the world am I going to survive? Well, so the Steelers aren't playing today, so that, that's a simple one. But without football, how would I turn off the TV? For some, it's your cell phone has become your gateway into addiction. Turn off the phone. I'm going to switch gears for a second. I'm going to play an audio clip for you. Please don't say anything if you recognize this. All right? So listen to this audio clip, and then I'm going to ask you a question. That's a phone. That's not the clip. Some of you are going back to some 
very precious memories right now. And then it gets weird, strange sounds. Yes. All right. Raise your hand if you have never heard that before. Be honest. It's okay. Yes? Yes? Okay. All right. Now raise your hand if you are not 100% positive as to what that sound is. Okay. If you are under 25, I would expect you potentially to raise your hand. For those of you who are unaware, this is how we accessed the internet before the internet was fast. It was called dial-up. I mean, you know, you know. So uh, maybe this, this picture will bring back memories. How many of you have ever remembered those CDs that they would send in the mail? 960 free hours of AOL, yeah? 960 hours! There's no way I'll ever let that run out. Four days later, you're like, where, where did it go? <clears throat> so something I want you to know, the internet has changed. Dial-up internet speed basically was maxed out at 56 kilobits per second, or 0.056 megabits per second, right? Then the world changed. We got DSL. Man, that was fast stuff. 1,500 kilobits per second, or 1.5 megabits per second. Changed my world. I could watch some, you know, shows, although we would get the little timer going on, and it was like, you know, really not HD quality. But we had some stuff. We could do stuff on the internet. Nowadays, again, there are varying speeds, but high-speed internet, you know, 400, that's not even right, there's one too many zeros. It's 400,000 kbps or 400 megabits per second. Here's the deal. Today's internet is roughly 7,000 times faster than dial-up. 7,000 times faster. It's so exciting. I love it. Here's the deal. I remember dial-up. I was a teenager in the early 90s, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It did not take long at all once the internet became a staple in everyone's home for inappropriate sites to begin popping up. I knew, even then, that the internet was a potential gateway into satisfying the lust of the eyes. And when I say lust of the eyes, I'm not just talking about sexual sin. I'm talking about everything. Like, hey, I can now see exactly what so-and-so did to their home. I need to do the same thing, keeping up with the Joneses. I can now see exactly what home I could buy in, in this state for the same. I can have a bigger house, and I want this. Again, anything that you desire that is not God first can potentially become, I'll call it lust, I'll call it envy. You, you call it whatever you want. But back when dial-up was a thing, we had access to the world. Now that the Internet is 7,000 times faster, that access is almost 7,000 times more readily available. It wasn't too long ago that Miriam and I, we, we looked around the house and we counted that there are at least 12 devices in our home that can access the Internet at high speed. Phones, tablets, TVs, even our, our old DVD player has access to the Internet. We had this conversation of, uh, <laughs> what does this mean for our family? What does this mean for our kids? Some of you have had that conversation before, and you are light years ahead of me. I mean, I've got a 13-year-old now, and so I'm more aware of, of reality than I ever have been. And so we're not anti-internet. I mean, gosh, we, we love the internet. It, it, we pay our bills, do our banking. We, we do everything on the internet. It's great. 
but we're aware of the potential that it also provides. And so Miriam and I had this conversation, and you guys are going to laugh at me because I, I thought I was tech savvy. Derek showed me this morning that I am not. <laughs> so when we had this conversation, one of the first things that I did was like, hey, babe, we need to put like, uh, we need to prevent the potential for our kids to go into places they shouldn't be going into. How do we do that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I did some research, and I was really proud of myself. I set up parental controls on my modem. If you don't know how to do that, I can help you. Better, better yet, Derek, he can even help you even better because he's a professional. But this was a big deal for me because I go, we're going to take a stand. We're going to take a step that wasn't taken for me when I was younger. There was no awareness of, you know, the kids taught the parents how to use this stuff. Even more so now than ever. My kids know more about my phone than I do. The kids teach the parents. And so we were having this conversation of, okay, we want to protect our family. And so we put up these parental controls. Job says something amazing in Job chapter 31. Oh, sorry, there we go, 7,000 times faster, yay. Job says this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So fill in the blank for whatever it is. I made a covenant with my eyes not to do X, Y, and Z. I made a promise to my eyeballs that I wouldn't do this. In essence, it was a covenant to God, but it was through his eyes. And so Job, in, in this, this comment, he says, you know what, I'm going to make a decision that I'm not going to allow garbage to filter through these. There's a company that was created called Covenant Eyes. They're an internet accountability company. Um, and side note, our church, we, we have the ability to give you a discount on this. If you're like, hey, I need accountability, or I want to have accountability for my kids, talk to me, because there are resources out there. So we're having this conversation as elders this morning, and Derek was like, there's got to be free stuff. I have this one thing that I use at my house. It's free. And I go, wow, sign me up, buddy, because I don't want to pay nothing. On our iPhones, there is this, he showed it to me. I was like, this is amazing. There's a screen. You probably know about it because you're amazing. Uh, there's a rabbit. I'm going to follow tangent. Um, <laughs> there is the ability for us to add protections uh, for our family because it's not just I don't want my kids to see garbage but I want my family to live in a right standing with God. It's that decision point. And I've talked with, with people, <laughs> and they said, I can't set up that on my modem, then I won't have access to the things that I want to have access to. Should you be doing that anyway? Well, my life, I can do what I want, right? Again, that moral it's mine. You can't tell me what to do. I don't want this for my kids, but it's okay for me. You know, do as I say, not as I do. That's garbage, friends. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We touched on this earlier. Worldly sorrow says man, I'm sorry that I got caught. I don't want to change. But now that you know about this, uh, I'm sorry about the consequences. I wish I didn't have to do this now that you know about my sin. I'm sorry that you think so poorly of me because your opinion of me is important. And, and now that you know I've done these things, you know, don't think bad of me. I'll change because I want you to like me. <laughs> That's not proper motivation. That's worldly sorrow. 
Godly sorrow says, I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the way that I've hurt you and God. I made a list. The negative, I failed, I screwed up. I have a moral obligation to be right. I got caught, I'm in bondage. I'll never be free. I have to do these things. And then the positive, but I'm forgiven in Christ. I I can be set free. I can have restoration. I don't want to sin. I want to honor God. I'm loved by Him. He is capable of forgiving me. Listen, worldly sorrow brings death because it does not indicate a changed desire for the right reasons. Godly sorrow is completely different. Godly sorrow flows from a pierced heart. And you have to cultivate godly sorrow in order to have true repentance. David wrote this about repentance to God in Psalm 51. Before I read this verse to you, I want to share a really awesome story. On Wednesday, after uh, Pastor Mike got done with uh, the youth group, one of the kids came up to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about becoming a Marine. I go, that's awesome. He goes, I got a problem. And he actually brought his dad to have this conversation with me. He goes, in the Bible, I know it says, you know, not to kill people. If I become a Marine and I have to kill people, will I go to hell? I'm like, dude, you are asking some amazing questions. Let me, let me walk through this with you. And I, I did real quick. I said, in the Hebrew, it's actually, thou shalt not murder. And let's look at what God invited the people. Of, he invited them to protect themselves. He invited them to fight for what was right. And, and there were instances where God told the people of Israel to kill others and, and understand that this was in God's, God's justice and his, his perfect holiness and all these things. At the same time, that, that's, that's over here. Over here, say that you do kill somebody. Will you go to hell? Let me tell you about King David. Man, he was a guy who God said he was a man after my own heart. He had an affair with Bathsheba. And after finding out Bathsheba was pregnant, had her husband Uriah murdered. This is his response to God when he was called out on his actions. In Psalm 51, 17, is also one of my favorite verses. It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And so I told this young man, I said, listen, there is forgiveness for sin. Do what God has called you to do. But don't stop asking these questions. These are great questions. I'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you through this process. But the idea is simple. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you have the potential to do. Billy Graham once said that each and every one of us are one decision away from wrecking our lives. Literally. I mean, we are one bad decision away from destroying our life. Think about that. You could go out and do X, Y, and Z, and it would change the trajectory of your life because there are consequences to your actions. But there's forgiveness for sin. It does not excuse our action. We still are left to deal with the consequences. But you and I have access to the creator of the world who loves us with an undying love that he said, I will send my son to die in your place and take your sin upon himself so that you can be free. A broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Rob argues that there are three ways we can cultivate a contrite heart that flows from godly sorrow. And so these are the, the, the three points that I want to leave you with today. The first, how do you 
cultivate a contrite heart that flows from godly sorrow. One is ask God for a broken and contrite heart. I can't tell you how much comfort Psalm 51.17 gave me as a young man. I still, as a young man, to this day, guys, your pastor is not perfect. Never have been, never will be. You are not perfect. You have never been and you never will be this side of heaven. Let me qualify that. All right? But understand this, that even in your sin, when you ask God for a broken and contrite heart, what he does within you is he, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's like this transplant surgery where he takes your heart and he says, I'm going to replace your heart with mine so that you can feel not the, the shame and condemnation, that's from the enemy, but so you can feel the, the, the consequences of your actions. I want you to know how much that hurt me, your father, when you did this. And I still choose to forgive you. I want you to know how this affected this other person when you did this. Even if they don't forgive you, I will. Ask God for a broken and contrite heart. God, would you reshape my heart, do that transplant surgery because I want to be in alignment with you. I want to have a healthy soul. Hmm. It can be easy <clears throat> excuse me, to give our hearts over to the hardening process. We shift blame. We focus on our reputation. We mull over the wrongs that have been committed against us that led to our response. Guys, I do a lot of marriage counseling with people in the church, out of the church. It doesn't matter. And oftentimes I hear this. If you didn't do this, I wouldn't have done this. It's your fault. You made me angry when I did this, and I just acted out of anger. It's your fault. When we shift, we don't take responsibility for our actions, right? And so it's not okay to justify whenever you feel your heart beginning to harden. Ask God to soften your heart once again. Second, choose to stand in the light with God and others. You guys ever, you know, been woken up in the middle of the night and somebody turns the light on in the room? You guys ever have that happen to you? Yeah, it's the most annoying thing in the world. Babe, thanks. Okay. I had a long day yesterday. Her day was longer. She le I left at like 5 in the morning for Army. She had a leadership thing in Pennsylvania that she went to, and she left before I did. I got home at 9.30 at night, and I was exhausted. I went to bed. She got home after I did. And so I'm, I have no ill will, but, man, it happened to me last night. Like, the lights came on somehow. I don't know. You open, and I was like, oh, I can't see what's going on. But that's our response to when we're surprised by the light. I love you. <laughs> yeah, I could, yeah, there, there are sleep. It's not written in my notes, and every time she goes, honey, just don't go there. Why do you, you're going to get yourself in trouble. I go, yeah, can't help myself. It's all my fault. <laughs> when Christ's light shines in the darkness and we're surprised by it, it's like that light that you want to hide from because it's so hard to adjust to. But again, that light leads to freedom where the darkness just leads to more shame and more hiddenness. Don't hide from that light. 1 John 1, 7 says this, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
I actually pulled out the sermon from two years ago where we talked about this, this word koinonia and fellowship, because I go, this, there are certain things that, that God illuminates for me that has, have changed my life, and this is one of them. This little nugget right here, and I have no shame sharing it with you again. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we assume that means that we'll have fellowship with him, this koinonia, which means an intimate partnership. But this verse says, we have fellowship one with another. One of the lessons we can learn is that by walking in the light, it does not mean that we're never going to sin, but that we do not seek to hide that sin from God. If we're walking in the light, then there is no hiddenness because darkness cannot hide within the light. And so the idea is simple. Choose to stand in the light with God and others. If I want to live a life that is in alignment with God's will, it means I'm going to come into the light. In the light, there is no darkness. If there is no darkness, there can be no hiddenness. I am fully bare before God. He knows every wrinkle. He knows every pimple. He knows every jelly roll. He knows everything. And it's a choice that you stand there before him. But this verse says, you don't have to do this alone. Stand in the light with God and others. Make this decision. If you want to have a broken and contrite heart that leads to godly sorrow, make a decision to stand in the light with Him. And then finally, take full ownership of your part. You are the only one responsible for you. If you are taking full ownership of your sin, then you cannot make excuses. Well, it was His fault. It was her fault. If you didn't do this or whatnot. 1 John 1.9 also... <laughs> One of my favorite verses, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here John portrays authentic Christian living as involving honest and ongoing acknowledgement of your sin. I screwed up here. Man, I need to walk. I need to bring this into the light. I... I messed up over here. Again, the negative. Let's take it into the positive. I need to be forgiven of this. I need to take it before the Lord. What's interesting is this idea of fellowship. Paul explains how this is supposed to work, this koinonia. Confession is not a theme that we see a lot in the New Testament. There are only four places where it occurs and in it occurs in the gospel accounts of the ministry of John the Baptist when people came confessing their sins to be baptized in Matthew and Mark. It's found in James uh, where, we're talk, where it talks about praying for the sick. But every time that this word confession, and I'll turn it into repentance in that sense, is mentioned, <clears throat> it's not done in private. It's always done in public. It's not just between me and God. <clears throat> and I think as Christians, that we are satisfied to keep ourselves in the light with God alone. Here, God, you know everything anyway. But if I'm going to bring somebody else into the light with me, I want you to be aware of my imperfections. It's the idea of accountability. I want you to walk with me as we together walk in the light. If we seclude ourselves from koinonia, from fellowship with other people, then we are destined to have hiddenness in our lives. Well, God, you know about it anyway. I'm just going to you know, not deal with it. But if my brother in Christ knows that I'm struggling with this, he has the ability to call me into the light with him or with her. You and I are not meant to do this alone. 
God's forgiveness means that he no longer holds our sin against us. He cancels the debt of our sin. God's purifying us from all unrighteousness means that he removes the filthy stench which sin has produced. It's done. A friend of mine once talked about sin as like letting a skunk into your house. Yeah, you let it run around, you let it do its thing, and then you kick it out the next day. Guess what? Your house still stinks. That's the same with your soul. Well, I stopped doing the action. Yeah, but have you been cleansed from that unrighteousness? Well, no, I don't, I don't do that all the time. Maybe you know, once every month or so, your soul still has the remnant of the stink of that sin until you confess it and bring it into the light. Do not leave it hidden. I don't care if it's something that you stopped doing 20 years ago. Have you repented? Have you sought forgiveness? Have you asked God to purify you from that unrighteousness? Because when you do, it is done. And the Lord says, your sin is as far as the east is from the west. I choose to remember it no more. God does not forget your sin. But when you seek forgiveness and repentance, Scripture tells us that he chooses to remember it no more. He doesn't hold it against you. Listen, godly sorrow is a powerful thing. You can't fake it. You can fake forgiveness. I can't tell you how many times I've said I'm sorry and didn't mean it when I was growing up. (laughs) I got caught. I'm sorry that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. What is God inviting you into? I want to close this service by giving you the opportunity for repentance. What does that mean? It does not mean that you stand up here with a microphone and say, hey, let me list off all the sins that I've committed because that's what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't have to be that public, but I do invite you into confession with one another. Would you bring somebody else into this process with you and say, hey, God's convicting me of X, Y, and Z, I need to tell you about X, Y, and Z, and then will you pray with me as I leave it at the altar? And so I'm going to just ask for some music to be played. Alan, if you can throw some music on in the back.